Deuteronomy 31. I, I want us to look at God's inspired word, and I want to start with a gentleman by the name of Moses. He's getting ready to leave the scene, and I want to make sure that we can hear some of his final words to the people. And in Deuteronomy 31, notice verse number 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And then in verse 26, it says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be therefore witness against you, for I know your rebellion, your stiff neck. Behold, while I'm yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death? And that's a question. So when we, when we discuss or talk about the word of God, then we have to consider how important it was to Moses. Now, all of us understand that without the Bible, our lives wouldn't have any kind of foundation at all. We're in Deuteronomy 31. And without the foundation of the scripture, the Bible says the righteous can't do much of anything. But verse 1 of Deuteronomy 31 says, Moses spoke these words to the children of Israel, and he said, I am 120 years old this day, and I can't go out and come in. Then he encourages them to stay with the Lord. Now imagine being 120 years old, still in your right mind, and still talking to people about God. I hope and pray that if the Lord tarries and the rapture doesn't occur, that at 120, all of you are still in your right mind. That would be good. I mean, still out here in a midweek Bible study, coming to fellowship with one another. I think that would be powerful. That would put a few of you a little older than me if I was 120, but God is able to do miracles. There's no doubt about it. Okay, but back in verse 9 again of Deuteronomy 31, Moses wrote the law. So this teaches us he was literate. He not only could write, but he certainly could read. But what he knew, he wanted to transmit to the next generation. So writing was not something that began later than Moses. Moses was living about 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene. And he wrote the words of God so that the words of God would be preserved. I am so grateful that someone created writing. And I'm so grateful for the invention of the printing press. And because of that, we have God's word and we can read about what happened with Abraham, what happened with Moses, David, and read the words of the prophet. But, but notice then, if Moses takes the time to write the law, he must have believed the word was worth preserving. He believed it because he knew he had received it from God, that it was the inspired word of God, and having received it from the Lord, he wanted it to continue 
to govern the lives of the children of Israel. You take the Bible out of the midst of God's covenant people, everything falls apart. You take the Bible away from a Christian, his or her life falls apart. But the man or woman who will build his life upon God's word is similar to the parable Jesus gave of the one who builds his house upon the rock. Then the storm comes. And because it's built on the rock, it survives the storm. Now, Moses also knew in verse 26 and 27 that the children of Israel were rebellious and stiff-necked people. He was their pastor, so he knew the character of some of the leaders and a lot of the people. Do you think pastors know the kind of sheep that they shepherd? Do you think parents know their children pretty well? Everybody has a different type of character. Some people's characteristics are much more standout or of a standout quality than some people. But I'm going to assume that none of you in here are stiff-necked. We'll just assume that. However, I think if we talk to you long enough, there's probably some tendencies toward rebellion here and there. And I'm sure your kids or your spouses would say that. Yeah. So a stiff-necked person is, is like the child that when the child gets angry, just tenses up their body and you, it's hard to get them to move. And of course, the only antidote to that, my dad thought, was a, a swift, rapid-moving hand to the backside. And of course, then things would kind of loosen up a little bit. But, but here, the Lord is saying through Moses, the antidote to rebellion is his word. If we read the word, if we obey the word, then God will preserve us. And that's why he says, while I am alive with you this day. Wouldn't it be something to listen to a 120-year-old person give witness to how good God is? The things that that person must have seen, that would be amazing. Some of the older people that I've had in my life that mentored me, I love the stories they would tell about church when they were younger, about revival services. When I was just a little 19-year-old boy and I was living in Jacksonville, North Carolina, I used to walk down this old road called Piney Green. And most of the people on this one-mile stretch of, of road were all related. And they all went to Marshall Chapel, the church where I was the youngest preacher amongst all the preachers that were there. But there was one lady who took an immediate liking to me when I got there, and, and she started calling me baby. Nobody ever called me Reverend Sutton, Minister Sutton, Elder Sutton. It was always baby. When I got up to preach, even the pastor would say that. Now, baby's going to preach to us this afternoon. And I mean, you know, because you can imagine how I, I feel. But 19, I didn't really care because, like I said, I was the youngest. But I would go to Mother Ethel's house. And at that time, Mother Ethel was already in her late 80s or early 90s. And she would always invite me over. And then she'd prepare for me a little bit of bear meat in the skillet that she had on that potbelly stove there in her house. And I'd sit there and ask her questions about what it was like growing up in 1910, 1920, when she got married, started with her kids. And she'd tell me about those old revivals. 
and about how the preachers trusted God. I mean, those preachers who were picking cotton during the the day and trying to preach at night or picking tobacco during the day and trying to preach the gospel at night. She'd talk about the hardships. I'd listen to all of that and think to myself, if I only can be as faithful as they were, then I can expect the blessings of God upon my life. And so she taught me then, through the years that I went to visit her, which was all the time, that if I modeled my life upon the word of God and allowed it to shape me, then I wouldn't end up in trouble. And when I used to preach to the youth of that church and do stuff with them, I mean, some of the kids, they were 14, 15, 16. Here I was preaching to them and directing them, and I'm just three or four years older than them, but in the Marine Corps. And I try to tell them over and over again why the word of God was so important. But so many of those young people weren't interested in being as passionate and as fervent as I was. But I lived long enough since Tiff and I got married and came up here. Those people down there, they, they still remembered me. And I, I can recall after we'd been here three or four years, the pastor who had taken over after my pastor had passed away. He finally died, and they called me up here. They said, Would, how are things going up in Nebraska? Would you like to come back down here to Piney Green and pastor the church? I said, oh, no, I've got to stay right here where I'm planting and do what God has called, called me to do. But it's the Bible that has guided my steps. It's the Bible that has guided your steps. Think about that. It makes all the difference in the world. Now let's go to the New Testament now, and I'm going to ask you to go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and I want to read verses 16 and 17. We're talking about the Word of God. We're teaching on the inspired Word of God. So let's look at some of the effects, some of the benefits of having the Bible. Verse 16. Well, let me start with verse 15. That from a child you have known the holy scriptures. So Paul describes the word of God as holy. Remember, his Bible consisted only of Genesis through Malachi. And he believed the Bible was inspired. He believed the books that came from Moses' hands, David's hands, Isaiah's hands, Hosea's hands, that these were inspired and holy, and we should hold the same view. Well, it says, The holy scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the person who's looking for wisdom should start with the Bible. The one who needs and desires to understand how to lead others to Christ should start with the book. How did people lead you to Christ? How was I led to Christ? Every decade there are new trends, new fads, new methods that people tell you you have to employ in order to reach people. But the one thing I have learned, and I really believe, it doesn't matter what generation you're dealing with, whether the young or the old, sin is always the problem. And the answer to sin is the cross and the blood. 
And if the Spirit of God is involved, then the Spirit of God can help us lead our folks to salvation. I think if we had a lot more fasting and prayer, I think if we had a, a lot more seeking the face of God, that we'd probably see a few more people that would come into the kingdom of the Lord. And so the scripture says in the Psalms that the one who goes forth sowing in tears will eventually come forth and break out in joy with a song in their mouth. So the Lord, he puts singing in our mouths if, in fact, we put the word of God there. We have it in our heart. So notice verse Verse, 15, verse 16 now. So all scripture, that's from Genesis to Revelation 22 for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it is God Almighty who worked through human instruments and led these people, men and women, to write down these things that were utterances as prophecies or were simply letters or prophetic statements that were made. You say, well, what ladies did God use? Well, of course, Deborah was a woman of God. Don't forget, Miriam led the ladies out in dancing and in a song. And thankfully, Moses didn't get so caught up in the singing and dancing that he forgot to write what his sister was saying. So he paid attention to what she was saying, and we have a record of it. So all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine. Now the word doctrine is synonymous with the word teaching. So if we want to learn correct and sound teaching, read the book. The Bible is different than any biography you'll ever read. And although you may have a favorite minister who has written some outstanding books on the Holy Spirit or on grace, we come back to this because only the Bible is inspired. Not your favorite book, not your favorite pamphlet, but this book here is given by the inspiration of God and it is profitable. So the best way to learn any kind of teaching is to search the book. The Bible says study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that would not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. So reading the Bible, mastering the Bible gives you confidence because you know what's in the book. If you don't know what's in the book, then you won't be confident when someone asks you to pray at the family gathering because you don't think you'll say the right thing. If you don't master the book, then you won't be confident enough to lay your hands on somebody and pray because you say, I think maybe you ought to get somebody else. So I'm, I'm a member of Rotary over in Hebron, which is a professional service organization. I've been a part of that thing for years. And whenever I show up, since I'm the only preacher in, involved, the, the, the mayor or whoever is there, they'll say something like this. Okay, uh, for the opening prayer today, we're going to let Daryl do it because he's a professional prayer. <laughs> I don't know what a professional is, but I know what he's saying. I'm a pastor, so I ought to know how to pray. But, but my thinking is they should know how to pray also. Yeah, they should know how to pray also. It's not about being a professional. It's about being scriptural. 
a layman, a laywoman, anybody who's a Christian should know how to pray. Yeah. And the Bible teaches us how to do this. So it's profitable for doctrine and also for reproof. Now, what is reproof? Reproof is when a person is doing something wrong and you sharply rebuke them. You know, so you let them know to stop doing that. Uh, Paul says in uh, one of his letters to Timothy uh, to rebuke uh, others openly sometimes, depending on what exactly took place. But the scripture reproves us. I look into this and James chapter 1 says, it reveals to me the manner of man that I am. So the Bible shows me my blemishes. It shows you your spiritual pimples. It shows you your flaws. And once those are revealed, it's at that point that God wants us to apply the word of God so that those things will go away. So God's word becomes a medicine. Our image is reflected through scripture. I don't know about you, but um, when the scripture says, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Only the person that has a clean hand and pure heart. We don't always feel clean. We don't always feel holy. But the book gives us confidence. I've said on plenty of occasions, how many times have you woke up in the middle of the night and you just had a, a, a dream that wasn't holy? And, and of course, immediately when you wake up, you don't feel Christian. You can go to sleep and have a dream where it seems like the devil is chasing you around and then you wake up and you don't actually feel Christian. Sometimes the first emotion that you have is one of fear, but you still have to stand and be strong. I'm thinking of a lady many years ago in Saudi Arabia. Her name was Koran and she was about 25 or 26 and was a nurse. And she told me about an experience she had and she said she'd gone to sleep. To her, it seemed like she was in a dream, but she never really knew if she was halfway in between sleep and being awake. But she said she was laying there in the bed, and all of a sudden she felt a presence that was next to her, and she felt like hot breath coming on her neck. And, and she said she immediately tried to look out of the corner of her eye because she was paralyzed with fear. And she said when she tried to shout the name of Jesus, she felt like she was muzzled and couldn't do it. And she mustered all the strength she could to try to look in the direction of that being that was there in a dark hood, a black cape and everything. And said when she was about to whisper the name of Jesus, he said to her in a very sharp voice, shut up. And then she said she finally shouted the name of Jesus. He disappeared and she woke up. Well, here's the thing. The, the devil will come to you any way he can. And if he can impose fear on you, he will try it. But even when we go to sleep, our inward man is still alive and awake to God. And that is why in so many situations, in your dreams, you're able to fight against the devil and you're able to resist the adversary because of the fact on the inside, you're still standing up. So all of the scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and then notice also for correction. Now why would correction be important? Because sometimes we err, sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we believe incorrectly. 
And when we're believing incorrectly, it takes the Bible to open our eyes to truth. Now, growing up as I did in a, a holiness church, they were under the impression that sanctification was a secondary blessing or subsequent experience to your salvation. And I recall they would often have us young people in the altar wanting us to pray that God would sanctify us because they thought that that inward nature, that somehow or another that thing could be uh, eradicated or somehow immobilized or something like that. And, and so that was what they taught. But then as an as a older teenager in reading the Bible, I came across that verse in 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 1, the last couple of verses, and it says something like this. It says, Jesus Christ was made unto us our to be our wisdom and our sanctification. Then like a light went on, and I realized I'm sanctified by him, and the moment I left the kingdom of darkness and came into the kingdom of his dear son, I was set apart. And regeneration, the new birth, was the beginning of me becoming holy. So regeneration is sanctification begun. And sanctification is that new birth continued. So I realized then that as a Christian, every day of my life, as I'm learning more and more about God, he is separating me from my old lifestyle, from my old habits, from my old haunts, and the closer I get to him, the better I am and the further I am from those things that displease him. So the Bible is good for correction. So how many different ways and how many different times did God work in your life to show you you were wrong on this or you thought wrong about that? And when the scripture says, for instruction in righteousness, that is to help us with our identity, to help us to understand what occurred when we were saved, to help us understand our status in the kingdom of God. I'll give this to you because I think this is a very important point. Very often you will hear people on television or radio and they will des describe Christians as just sinners who are saved by grace. And then they'll quote Paul in Timothy where he says that I'm the chief of sinners. If you read the context of what Paul is dealing with, then you'll see that Paul is describing his life before he became a Christian, how he was a blasphemer, how he persecuted the church of God unmercifully, and so on and so forth. And so that's why he comes along and says, I'm the chief of sinners. If you're going to add up the accumulated number of wrong deeds done, he said, no one is going to beat me. Because he stood there and wanted Christians to die. But then, if you think of this then, when Paul writes letters to the Christians in Corinth, in Galatia, in uh, Ephesus, in Colossae, you ever notice he never says to the sinners saved by grace 
in Thessalonica. He says to the saints. You say, why? Because of identity. So when I listen to people and they say we're just sinners saved by grace, I understand exactly what they're saying, and it sounds very humble. It's a very modest statement, but think about it. If you are a sinner, then you're not saved. And if you're saved by grace, you're not a sinner. See? So pick one. Which one are you? So Paul says to the saints which are in Ephesus. So being a saint doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I'm without a flaw. It doesn't mean I don't err. But the Bible says the one, in 1 John, who commits sin habitually, practicing sin every day as a matter of nature and lifestyle, that person is of the devil. That's what he said. So we are the children of God or children of wrath. So this is why I think the Bible gives us instruction and righteousness to help us see that we are saints. And you don't have to wait on a committee to vote on your status to make you a saint. You don't have to wait till you die to become a saint. You're a saint because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So the Bible provides instruction in righteousness. So the man and woman of God will be perfect. So that's what the Lord desires. He said to Abraham, come thou before me, and be thou perfect. God wants us to come into his presence, not in our own perfection, but in the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible for us to approach God in anything other than the righteousness of God if we're going to have his approval. And that approval comes because Ephesians 1 says we have been accepted in the beloved. So just like God said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says of Gwen, this is my beloved daughter whom I'm well pleased. He says of Don, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, because he opened up his arms, died on the cross, we accepted him, and we were brought into fellowship so that his righteousness could become ours. That helps anybody when they're trying to understand identity, when they're trying to deal with self-esteem, and when they're trying to break out of depression. To realize that I don't have to live under the looming clouds of despair that remind me continually of my past. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So verse 17, to be thoroughly or thoroughly furnished unto all good works, equipped to all good works. The only way we're going to do the works of Jesus, we have to be equipped to do them, and you can't be equipped to do them without a Bible. It's hard to do it without a Bible, without the Word of God to speak to you clearly. Now, let's go to, um, let's go a few pages ahead, and let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and let's look at another verse which you will find in 
verse number 12. And I think this is helpful in understanding the word of God also. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive or living, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner or is a judger of the thoughts of the heart. See? And then it says, and the intents or intentions of the heart. So according to Paul here, God's word is a living thing. In the beginning, God spoke and he created. So his word is creative. See, created the heavens and the earth. It created man. It created the stars in heaven. So Paul honestly believes that the word of God as a living thing is able to continue to recreate in our lives if we walk in obedience to it. Because if God spoke into the darkness and commanded the light to shine, then what happens when we then take the word of God, receive it, believe it, and that word hasn't haven't been spoken in us? The scripture says faith comes by what? By hearing. So that means the moment you begin to believe, the word of God is having a creative impact in your life. And the same way he made the heavens and the earth, he can start working on your life and create a brand new world for you. He can. So Genesis 1 and 1 says, in the beginning, God created. And we've told you on more than one occasion that life is about new beginnings. New beginnings. But if in every new beginning you have God, then you can make and create something. So a new beginning, the first day of uh, school for a first grader. That's a new beginning. You know, somebody, you know, first time they go to Head Start, first day they go to the kindergarten or whatever. But think about the first day when you went into junior high school or middle school, they call it now. And you, you remember how happy you were to get out of the sixth grade and no longer had to sit in one classroom all day long and you long to be able to spend 45 minutes here 45 minutes there and then walk up and down the hallways and talk to your friends and have your own locker and then when you graduated from high school new beginning then you fell in love with somebody said I want to spend the rest of my life with you and you get married it's a new beginning and then here comes the first of your 27 children. New beginning, see? So new beginning over and over again. But as Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. If we have God with us at every beginning, then we can create something that will last and bring blessings to a whole lot of people. So look at it again in Hebrews 4. The word of God is living, powerful, sharper than a sword. So a sword, of course, is able to slice. You, you take a, a machete or a scythe, and a person with a scythe can go out in the field 
and they can start cutting things back. In fact, in Africa to this day, they don't have people that have mechanized equipment that cuts the uh, grass in the ditch. When you ride up and down the road, you see Africans out there with a scythe, and they're just all day long doing this, and they're just cutting all day long, 100 degree heat, and you just see them everywhere, just cutting because the blade is sharp. Well, that's what this is. That's what this is. This is able to work all the way down into your inner thoughts, into your heart, and God can discern your thoughts, and he can let you know whether they're carnal, spiritual, holy, healthy, profane. Even when you're speaking with me, and I'm talking with you, God knows exactly whether or not your thoughts are pure. Yeah. So think about the Sunday mornings when I'm teaching and, and sharing the word of God and, and people are looking at me as I'm teaching, but I mean 15, 20 minutes beforehand, they clocked out. I mean, it's still here, but they're already walking down a grocery aisle thinking about what they need to put on the list and purchase. Yeah. Or, or they're, they're already thinking about the upcoming trip when they're going to see their family. But yet the whole time their face is locked on me as I'm teaching the word of God. He's a discerner. So he can see, he can tell even when I'm preaching and teaching, to, teaching you the word of God and my mind is on barbecue. <laughs> he knows. Yeah, he can, he can see all of this. I've had plenty of occasions where before I got up to speak, somebody mentioned to me about some nice food or North Carolina barbecue or something like that, and I've got to get up and preach. And in the middle of that preaching, my mouth is just salivating because I'm thinking about that vinegar and pepper sauce that goes into making that stuff. And then I'm dreaming about the two year, two and a half years I spent in North Carolina going from one barbecue joint to the next barbecue joint, and I still have to try to preach and be anointed. Yeah. So verse 12 says it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there's not any creature or creation that is not manifest in his sight. Everything is naked and open unto him. You can't hide a thing from God. And we try to hide it a lot. Yeah. There have been plenty of things in my life that I've wanted to be able to just pull a curtain around me so that God couldn't peek in. But even when Adam and Eve went to the tree and she grabbed the fruit and then gave it to Adam and they both started chewing and swallowing, the Lord was right there watching them when they did it. And let's never forget that when the children of Israel had to go to fight over there against the Jericho people, and, and, and the Lord had already told them, said, look, when you get there, don't take anything. Leave it all there. But Achan, he got there in the middle of all of that, and he saw that wedge of gold. He saw a beautiful garment. He thought would either look good on him or on his wife. 
And he grabbed that and he bundled all of that stuff up, put it up under his little marching garment that he had. And he, he got back in line with the children of Israel. And when they were marching out, headed home, they were shouting the victory because they had won the war. And I mean, here he was. He had touched the unclean thing. And yet nobody around him knew what he did. But God knew. And God told Joshua, it isn't nice what has happened around here. And uh, I want you to cast lots and bring every tribe in front of you. And you know that when they brought the first tribe, one by one, that Achan was thinking to himself, I wonder, if I, am I going to be discovered here? And then when they finally got to his tribe, he said, this is the one. And then they start bringing family by family in front of him. And then finally, I'm sure he's thinking, oh, my goodness, this is looking bad because it's coming down to me. And they finally got to him. And, of course, he was guilty. And he and his family suffered because of a decision that he made. So when we talk about everything is naked before the eyes of God, what is there that we can do that he doesn't see? And since we know that he sees everything, then wouldn't it be better for us, as Peter says, knowing that the coming of the Lord is near and that he, the day hastens, how much better we ought to behave ourselves in holiness and in our conversation? Yeah, it's true. Let me give you one more verse of scripture. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, we're talking about the word of God, the inspired word of God, the importance of this book. 2 Peter 1, look at verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy or prophetic word made more sure. Whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and day star rise in your heart. So notice in verse 19, the lights he, he is describing get bigger and bigger. So he describes a light like a candle. And then he describes the dawning of the day with the sunrise. And then he describes the day star, Jesus Christ. Now, now, notice how different it is if you walk into a room in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and all you have is a, a flashlight. That's totally different than if you walk over to the wall and hit the button and the power is now and then the light bulb floods the whole room with light. See? And, and then even that is different then you stepping outside at 2 o'clock in the afternoon like today and the sun is shining over all of this luscious creation. Imagine what it must have been like for the Apostle Paul when he was on the road to Damascus and the light and the glory of Jesus Christ shone round about him. The, it was so blinding that he fell to the ground. So Paul is trying to show us here that the word of God is like prophecy. Prophecy predicts the future. Prophecy tells you what's taking place presently. And he says this thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger. He shows us through prophecy, the Lord does, he lets us know what's going to take place in the last days. 
So we know there's going to be a continuous revival prophesied by Joel. But we also know there's going to be a falling away of people that turn apostate and leave the truth. We know that as long as the gospel is preached and we remain, that there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People will be saved, healed. God is going to use men and women, boys and girls, right on up to the end. But we also know there's going to be false doctrines, seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. So Peter says in verse 20, knowing this first of all, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. He said, when you're reading the book, there's not a man or woman in the Old Testament that ever sat down and on their own created a prophecy. There's not a one of them that ever looked at another religion and pulled all the different beliefs of that religion together and then sat down and wrote. That's what makes this book a miracle. More than 40 different authors over a period of a couple of thousand years were able to sit down and write and put all of these things together and one chapter after another shines light on the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You can find the image of Jesus in Joseph, just like you can in his dad and in his grandfather. You can find the images of Jesus in the book of Ruth, just like you can in the Song of Solomon. You can find pictures of Jesus in Jeremiah and also in Hosea, all throughout the Old Testament. I know you can do that because Jesus sat down with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said, look, let's open up the text. He opened up the text, and he showed them all the places in the law, the writings, and the Psalms that pertain to him. That's what the book says in Luke chapter 22 and going forward in 23 and 24. So verse 21 no, it says, the prophecy came not in old time, or under the old covenant, by the will of man. These folks weren't prophesying on their own at, at will. Spirit of God was inspiring them. But the holy men of God, that word men is generic. It's including women also. The generic use of the word mankind. But the holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? The Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. So the Spirit of God moves people to prophesy. That's what happened under the Old Covenant. This is what happened under the New Covenant. Now some people will tell you prophecy died out with the last apostle. Untrue. Untrue. The same Holy Ghost that was in the apostles were also in the thousands of disciples that heard Jesus Christ when he was here on planet earth. And do you realize that even when the last apostle died, there were still other disciples alive on planet earth that had heard Jesus? And the Holy Ghost that was in the apostles was the same Holy Ghost that was in them. Well, folks will say, well, if, if, if people today are able to predict or able to prophesy, then that means they're adding scripture. Untrue. Untrue. The Bible says that that Holda the prophetess. She occupied that role. She didn't write a book at all. 
The Bible tells us that Paul had with him Silas and Judas. It says in the book of Acts, both of them were prophets. They prophesied and exhorted the people. They didn't write any scripture. They didn't feel the need to record every statement that was made. The Bible says that Paul was an apostle. He was not one of the 12 foundational apostles of the Lamb. He came after the 12, after they voted to replace Judas, but he was called by God. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23, it talks about messengers of the churches. And the word messengers in the Greek are apostles. And Paul is describing his co-laborer named Titus and other people. Titus was an apostle. Titus didn't write a book. He has a book written to him. In Thessalonians, I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, around verse 6 and 7, Paul is talking about Silas and Timothy and himself. He calls all of them, including himself, apostles. But we don't have any record at all that Silas tried to write a book or Timothy tried to write a book. If one of them ever wrote anything, they might have wrote something in the name of Paul, but we don't have any record at all that, that one of them as apostles tried to create some kind of scripture. So my point is very simple. The same inspiring power of the Holy Ghost that operated in the pages of this book is still the same power that's available today throughout the body of Christ. And when you hear somebody give an utterance in tongues and the interpretation comes or somebody gives a prophecy, it doesn't mean it needs to be written down and adhered to as if it's Isaiah, but it does mean it's a word of exhortation from heaven to planet earth to let people know, keep walking with God. Keep walking with God. And if we live close to the king... And let him have his way in our hearts and in our lives. I can promise you the same power that was released then will continue to be that same power that will be released in us. Can you imagine if the gifts of the Holy Ghost really broke out in this church? I mean, I mean the, 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 the bushes out there would be tramped down because there's so many people standing in line. Folk, folks would have their faces pressed against the windows trying to figure out what in the world is going on because of the mighty anointing and the power of God. Well, that's what he wants. That's what he desires. He doesn't want a church to just be an old dead thing where nobody knows the king or has a passion or, or any kind of earnestness for the Lord. He wants people to be fervent and to press on, even when other people are saying they don't believe. I don't care. Yeah, I've decided a long time ago, I'm not going to be a dead preacher just because somebody else is dead. And it doesn't matter because dead preachers preaching dead sermons to dead congregations don't produce the life of God. But if somebody ever grabs hold to, you know, a live wire, you can see something that starts taking place. You put enough water through a hose and the pressure is going to cause that hose to flop around a little bit. And if the power of God is at work and functioning in us, I'm telling you, you'll see people with stammering lips. You'll see people sometimes, they might shake, tremble, cry, smile, laugh, whatever that God is leading them to do. But we simply need to be submitted and yielded 
and take God out the box. Because whenever people put him in the box in the Bible, God said, thank you very much. I do believe I'll step outside of that, and I'll let you keep believing what you want to believe as I do what I want to do over here. And then when people over here draw a box and make it a little bit bigger, he said, I appreciate you following me up until this point, but I believe I'm going to step outside the box and I'm going to do something else and show you that I'm even greater than you ever could conceive. It's a great day to be alive, folks. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. What a Savior. What a God. He's lovely and beyond compare. Amen? Wow, what a wonderful Savior. Let's stand tonight. Let's just worship our lovely Savior for a few moments there. <clears throat> Father, there's no one like you in all the earth. And when we think of how glorious and how good you are, we can only thank you, Lord. Thank you for our life, our health, our strength. Thank you, Lord, that we can offer to you sacrifices of praise. Thank you, God, that you're a deliverer and a redeemer, that you're working behind the scenes even when we don't recognize that you're at work. Oh, God, we appreciate your great grace that is upon us. Anoint this church in a new and living way, God. Let your power vibrate in every service, Lord. Let there be manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Ghost and the fruit of the Spirit. Nine fruit and nine gifts. Oh God, I pray, Lord, that there would be a passion in all of us. Let our people, when they lay down at night, God, talk to them laying in that bed. Let there be a wonderful outpouring of fresh oil, God, in the middle of the night. I pray, God, we never be the same. And God, whatever you do inside of us, let us be contagious so that anybody that comes around us within the vicinity of our bodies, let that anointing radiate so that other people would develop an appetite for the things of God. Thank you for past revivals. Thank you for present moves of God. And we praise you for what you will do here in the valley, oh God, through people that love you and are pressing on, God, and forgetting those things that are behind. Oh, God, we take the time now to intercede for our loved ones. We pray for sons and daughters and cousins and spouses and nieces and nephews. Turn them from iniquity. Right now, oh, God, we're in agreement that your power is at work, Lord. We pray, God, you talk to them in dreams and in visions. Put people in their pathway that would minister to them about God. And Father, put people in their lives that they would find credible and respectable. People that they would listen to even when they won't even listen to a family member. We pray, God, you'd use our hands when we lay hands on the sick. We pray, God, that throughout this fellowship, for our men and women that are at home, God, maybe at work, whatever they're doing, I pray, God, they would be strong witnesses for you. These things, almighty God, we do pray for, knowing that you are a great and mighty Savior. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen, 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 amen.